Welcome to the Mystic Fool's Journey podcast. I'm Anna and this is Ruth. Howdy. This is an occult history podcast and today we're diving into sympathetic magic. Let's jump on in. Yeah, let's do it up. So basically I got into this whole topic after I heard something somewhere about contagious magic, which is I feel like a pretty self-explanatory term. It's the idea that stuff for people who've touched each other or have kept some sort of a like a permanent connection. So if someone gets their hands on your hair, nails, teeth, clothes, they could use that stuff to work some magic on you. Like I think it's uh I think we've all seen in the movies where the troubled heroine has to get her hands on a lock of like the love interest hair so the town <laughs> witch can cast the love potion or whatever. That's oh, yeah. like contagious magic. Yeah, that's a that's a classic example. <laughs> For sure. And so I was thinking, like, what's up with that? And how did we start carving out these little, like, niches in magic? And, like, similar to when we talk about left hand and right hand path magic, I wanted to know what the equal opposite to contagious magic is and who decided that it deserved its own category. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we've, we've chatted about this on the side about how, like, we could just have a whole season of episodes that just do like top level like different types of magic because the deeper you dive like the more fragmented it gets and like we have more and more like versions now (laughs) you know yeah absolutely and each one kind of has its own little niche culture to it it'd be pretty Mm -hmm. cool to dive into oh yeah so i started going down the rabbit hole and found out that the first person to categorize this type of magic was a man named sir james george fraser who wrote an incredibly popular book titled, okay, I don't exactly know how to pronounce this, The Golden Bow? Okay, great. Mm -hmm. I think you could say bow, but you know. I was going to say The Golden Boof. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) well, okay, I think bow or bow would either be the more correct version. For our listeners at home, it's spelled B-O-U-G-H, like, you know, like a, a like a tree branch. Yeah. Bow. Yeah. Yeah, bow (laughs) makes sense. Boof would be fun, though. Boof would be more fun. You're right. So the book is all about trying to figure out what all these ancient religions had in common. Basically, Frazier says that a lot of those old-time religions were basically the same and all celebrating and sometimes even sacrificing a super important guy, like a sacred king or something. He also says some crazy stuff about how like most early religions were fertility cults, which kind of intrigued me, but that's off track. Well, I mean, like, okay, so we said you said a lot in that. See, we jumped from like, yeah, he would like talk about how religions were super similar and then they like kill a guy and then they're all about having sex. Like, so let's let's just like bag it up a minute. Let's do it. Um, Yeah. So like from my understanding, Fraser was through this book, he was trying to do several things, like too many things in one book. So he had this hypothesis that all civilizations go through phases where they first believe in magic and then as they advance, they would, like, go more into organized religion. And then if they advance further, they get into, like, believing in science. And he did say that, like, there could be something after science. But, like, he couldn't imagine it, essentially, because, I don't know, we're not there yet. <laughs> but in trying to discuss this whole hypothesis, he was trying to also catalog, like, a bunch of different cultures, myths, and folklore. And trying to identify universal symbols and motifs across all of them by comparing them. Which is a big task, first mm-hmm. of all. And then also it's kind of like, it kind of became reductive. Like he was trying to prove himself right rather than looking at what was actually there. Um, so some examples of those supposedly shared symbols or sacred symbols are like what you mentioned, the sacred king. So 
I think it, everybody got in an uproar because he kind of like used Jesus as an example of like the killing of a sacred king as a motif. And everyone was like, oh, how dare you like relate Christianity to paganism? Yeah, right. That's a that's a whole <laughs> different episode, by the way, which is totally fine. But another one that people might have heard of is um, the scapegoat is probably the most specific one because we like use that in everyday life. But like a scapegoat was an actual ritual where people would transfer their sins to a goat and then either sacrifice the goat or like release the goat into the wild at so as to like purify the person whose sins were placed on it so like he was trying to find he was specifically trying to prove himself right and find all these like symbols and so he like started to make some really weird hypotheses to make it all work like oh we're all actually fertility cults and it's like i think you really ever left out some details there bud but yeah, he really tried so hard to make it work. I think he even, like, revised... There were 12 copy different versions of this book. He kept revising oh my gosh. the book over and over. And, like, yeah, it was crazy. But this book came, way- came out way back in 1890 and was pretty groundbreaking for its time because it looked at religion in a whole new way, kind of like a mm-hmm. modern perspective. He was mm-hmm. really challenging a lot of people's beliefs, and, you know, I feel like he did some good in that, possibly. And you know what? It had a big... Maybe. <laughs> yes. And you know what? It had a big influence on the literature scene in Europe back then. People were talking about it a ton. But nowadays, his works are largely rejected by modern anthropology and religious studies. It kind of sounds like most of his writings are car- considered like armchair anthropology because it mm. lacks the structure most academic works have. He also just, like you said, really tries hard to force the religions to fit his ideas. In a way that totally glosses over the individuality of each culture and religion. But it does still have a ton of popularity in New New Age circles. Yeah, it did have a a really big effect on New Age circles. For better or for worse, for the poor cultures that he uh, wrote about. So I think that, yeah, we've learned that people can just publish things like um, willy-nilly. Just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's verified or has like evidence. I think previous listeners might recall when we chatted about uh, Dejebeline when we were discussing tarot, where he basically published a bunch of essays in like 1781, 1780s. And in one of them, he just like straight up claimed that tarot came from Egypt and he because he thought it did. It He had zero evidence. He had never he didn't go to Egypt. We hadn't discovered anything about tarot in Egypt. And we know through all of our previous episodes, tarot didn't come from Egypt. But, you know, because of this essay that he could just like publish and was widely read, everyone was like, oh, tarot holds the secrets of Toth and the ancient Egyptians. And he had zero basis. So this is. A little bit. It's like he tried to do some research, um, but like like more research than Dejebeline, but it's along those lines where he's just like, here's my ideas about how things work. And I'd like it. To, I'd like it to work like this. Um, another interesting thing I found is apparently Fraser even said this book was speculative. So, um, you know, there's a couple reasons why this book isn't academically sound, besides the fact that he admitted it was speculative. But yes. Like, First off, he uses only secondary sources, meaning that he didn't go to these places and talk to the people who actually believed in these myths or practiced these rituals. 
he just like talked to people who talked to people you know it's like it's like a gave a telephone he like talked to people who talked to people who might have been to that place (laughs) type thing and like it got things get lost in translation that way or he like read papers by people who were writing about it so that was like a big it's like a big no-no let's just be like i just talked to some people who like have kind of been associated with it and it's like that's not this that's not the same um but then two we talked about how he like tried to really force the this like stuff these cultures into his ideas and he apparently had like a very superiority like complex about it and was very prejudiced when talking about other cultures like meaning he really just could not have any sort of empathy or objective viewpoint about how these myths were valuable to other cultures practices so Everything is described from a very imperialist lens. Like, he literally would call other people's cultures, like, primitive, crude, and savage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's not one that we should be basing anything off of nah. these days. We've nah, evolved would, like, for the better. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. We've, got, we've gotten past that point. <laughs> so basically, the only idea that has survived from this book is the idea of sympathetic magic, and it's two parts. Similarity, or sometimes that's called imitative, and contagion. Sympathetic magic is a concept within the realm of magic and folklore that is based on the idea that like produces like, or that two things that are similar in some way are connected and can influence each other. It's a fundamental principle of many magical and ritualistic practices found Mm -hmm. in various cultures throughout history, but sympathetic magic is typically divided into two main categories, sympathetic magic by imitation and sympathetic magic by contagion. Both forms of sympathetic magic are grounded in the belief that there is a hidden mystical connection between things or symbols and the desired outcome. This belief is definitely not unique to any one culture or time period. It can be found in various forms across the world. Sympathetic magic is often seen as a way to exert control over one's environment or fate and is a central aspect of many magical and ritual practices in different societies. Okay, so within sympathetic magic, we've got like two branches, the similarity magic and contagion magic. We touched a little bit on contagion magic and we'll get into it deeper so I have a better understanding of that one. But let's what's similarity magic? Okay, so similarity magic is used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different practices. One of the more unique ways was using it to control animals, which I thought was interesting. They would control both the hunted animals and the livestock, you know, to kind of guide that and get the outcomes they wanted with either but most popular is definitely voodoo dolls or i think in european folklore they're called poppets i don't know if that's an equivalent comparison but in my mind the general ideas are the same for both things i think we're both familiar with those the doll represents the person and whatever you do to the doll it happens to the person Uh and then there is candle magic which i was totally surprised but it makes total sense yeah Yeah, so different colored candles are used to represent various desires or intentions, and through the act of burning the candles and focusing one's intent, individuals believe that they can manifest their desires. So, like versus like for sure. Uh Uh-huh. And one thing that I've always found really funny about (laughs) candle magic is that the Catholic Church totally does it with their, like, I think they're called votives. And they also bless... Yeah, yeah, votives. And they also bless candles, too. I know uh-huh. that they use like that. I they used to use like blessed candles during storms to protect their home. Oh yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think we could find a lot of um, 
magic that is used in the Christian church today that where they just use new words that don't sound witchcrafty. But when you think about like the rituals they go through, like eating the body and blood of Christ, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> along with all of these like candles, uh, especially in like the Catholic and Orthodox church, like, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's some magic influence going on and it's just been rebranded. <laughs> yeah. One point to Fraser there. That was kind of his yeah. whole point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but the one that really surprised me was photographs. People use photographs to cast love spells, which makes total sense in the modern day. I mean, we have cell phones in our pockets. They're like the best cameras you can get. And so that makes sense for for nowadays. But that's not the part. So that's not the part that surprised me. But what did surprise me was that this practice started in the late 1800s. Okay. But like, that's when photography was like invented. (laughs) Like, I know that like, I think the, the daguerreotype, which is. Like, I'm sure if, if you haven't, like, obviously you wouldn't have seen one in person, but they're the ones that the drawings of these cameras are, like, the accordion-looking things where there's, like, the sheet you put over your head to dive into it. Like, they're really big and clunky, and they weren't really, like, available until, like, 1860. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. It's so crazy. That's why I was so surprised. And so mm-hmm. I fell down the rabbit hole once again for this one. And I was like, I got to find out how, how this started. Like, who started this? Uh, but obviously, I couldn't find a freaking solid source. <laughs> of course. So what we do know is that the late 19th century was marked by the popularity of spiritualism, a movement that sought to communicate with the spirits of the deceased. And many dang. spiritualists used photographs as a mean of capturing spirits or energy. And this may have influenced the adoption of photographs and other forms of magic and divination, but most popularly, photographs were used in love spells. Mm, interesting about the love spell specific. I have to insert the story of William Mumler real quick. So this guy stumbled on the technique of double exposure. So for anybody who doesn't know what that is, in photography, if you use film, or in this case, film hadn't been invented yet, so he was using these big metal plates. And if you expose them once, you if you wait, you can then like expose them again and essentially take a photo on top of a photo. So then when you actually like develop the photo, you can get like these cool, weird overlapping double images. So Mumler accidentally used a plate that had already been used and he didn't know it to take like a photo of himself or whatever. He was practicing <laughs> his portraits and it ended up looking really spooky because the photo that was taken before he took the photo was of a person but the way once like it came out in the like developing process it looks really ghostly so it looks like there's like this spirit of a person like haunting him ooh and at the time spiritualism was on the rise and you know he showed this to some people but it like got into the hands of some spiritualists who were like this is real like Whoa. he he knew what happened. Like Mumler was was like not he was not like spreading these like rumors. Well, no, he was spreading these rumors himself, but he wasn't. He didn't believe in it. It's not like he thought someone was haunting him. He knew what had happened in his b- photography booth. But once other people saw it, he made a good solid business off of becoming a medium, quote unquote, nice, and taking these double exposures. And he would tell people like, "Oh, this is the." spirit of someone who wants to contact you or like an old relative and all this stuff so he would just make up these lies and he made a business off of these like spooky photographs whoa um, i think he was eventually discovered because he took a photo of someone and 
the guy he took a photo of knew the other person in the photo and knew that they were alive. But <laughs> he was like, he's like, no, nah, like that, that dude, that dude's my neighbor. <laughs> like, oh my talking? God. Yeah. It's one of those. He got caught that way. Oh, <laughs> uh, bummer, Mumler. You got to be a little more uh, creative there. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me. Like, that's like my hypothesis is that like, it wouldn't surprise me if this whole shtick of using double exposure to like, quote unquote, reveal spirits might have been like an initial foray into using photography. Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's totally what happened. Yeah. yeah. And also just so we all know, I have spirit photography on our list of things to cover. Oh, I think that'd yes. be so sick. Especially the aura photos. I've always oh, wanted my... to do one of those. I got one of those done. <laughs> oh cool. Lucky duck. Got real lucky. <laughs> So back in the late 1800s, people were getting into all sorts of weird and mystical stuff. And they wrote books and pamphlets about magic and the supernatural. And some of these writings had tips and tricks for using photos and love spells and other magical hocus pocus as well. It's like they were sharing their magical secrets with a broader crowd. That's cool. So yeah, the first thing that when you when you said that, the first thing that popped into my head was like a cover of Cosmo or Vogue yes, magazine. Yes, it's exactly what it was. Yeah, it's like, but all the little headlines are like, want to make him fall hard? Try our five easy love charms. Or like, are you a good witch or a bad witch? Take our quiz. That's exactly what was happening. When I was researching it, I got like some names of some of the pamphlets oh. and that sort of thing. I forget what they're called, but they were like the ba- the black piplin or something like oh that. Oh my gosh. It was super Ooh. fun and I was like desperate for trying to find like an online archive of oh, these pamphlets. Yeah. But there's really them. none exist. Dang. Ugh. We'll have know. to imagine it. We'll have to make our own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll do our own zine. Yeah, zines. And so I think to like just to kind of summate this, if there's one thing we know about doing this podcast it's that people are going to find a way to insert magic into any new invention they can. A hundred percent. So contagious magic to me is kind of fun. It's like the funnest. This is what kind of sparked this whole episode. And to me, it seems so like chaotic and unhinged compared to sympathetic magic or to imitative magic. <laughs> like I'm sure there's plenty of examples of situations where two people are active participants in the ritual and it's kind of like a calm situation, you know, a lot of, you know, consent mutually going on but my first thoughts when i think about this kind of magic is like two crazy breast friends sneaking into the ex-boyfriend's apartment to steal from hair from the hairbrush to cast a love spell and everything just kind of turns into a comedy of errors from that point the other like pop culture references that come to mind is the conjuring and Evan moraine's room full of like haunted and forbidden (laughs) objects and we just keep those hanging around (laughs) yeah i've I've never, I've also never seen like an example in pop culture of consensual contagion magic or like like sympathetic magic too. Like either one, it's all still about like, except for the candle magic when you brought that up. I'm like, that's that one has been, I've seen that used in like positive benevolent ways. Right. But almost always it's just like someone trying to hurt someone else. And you're like, is there any good, like good use for this? Like, has anyone used this to like help cure someone? Like Yeah, for sure. That would be a pretty good uh, topic to explore someday in depth. What is the relationship magic has with consent? <laughs> I, well, yeah, in pop culture, not much. But, but yes, but 100%. Yeah, that would be a, that'd be a great one to... Because uh, there's certain types of magic. I think that if you're, you're trying to be ethical, you would not practice. Right, yes. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It's like a, a relationship tarot reading spreads. At some point, maybe let's not. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I have. I, I have personal rules around trying to predict other people's <laughs> thoughts and feelings when you could just talk to them. Right. So there's many different ways that practitioners use contagious magic. Many cultures have practices for protecting against the evil eye, a malevolent gaze believed to bring harm. And in these practices, objects such as amulets, charms, or symbols are imbued with protective properties through rituals and then worn or displayed to ward off harm. The belief is that the object can absorb and neutralize the negative energy, making it an example of sympathetic magic by contagion. In voodoo and hoodoo practices, sympathetic magic by contagion is common. Personal belongings or bodily fluids, which is gross. (laughs) Well, you know, magic wasn't formed during a time when we had like hygiene, (laughs) hygiene practices that were regular. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, hair, nails or blood of a target person are used to create a connection and exert control over that individual. This can be used for both positive and negative purposes, including love spells and curses. But um, in to your, I think you mentioned this earlier. In some folk healing traditions, practitioners use objects that have come into contact with a person to diagnose or treat illnesses. Yeah. So we just mentioned that. So like that's that's good to know that we that there it was used at some point to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took me a minute. I think when because I was getting used to these phrases of sympathetic magic yeah. by contagion, like just sounds like a, a like wait hold up my brain was just like wait what? So yeah, contagion is the body part. And the doll created with the contagion, a.k.a. with the body part, is the sympathetic part of the magic. To break yeah. it down for everybody at home who's trying to keep track. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah, <clears throat> listening to this. I was like, wait, no. I was just, let me replace the words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the sympathetic part is like versus like. So sympathetic is anything like the person or thing you're trying to get. And then mm-hmm. contagion or imitative are just the modes of transportation. Yeah. The, the pieces. So my favorite, my personal favorite of this sort of thing is grave dirt. Oh, okay. <laughs> grave dirt. People think that the dirt carries the power and essence of the deceased and can be used in various magical and healing practices. Man. Unfortunately, this also includes like items taken from burial grounds in general, which is not cool and we don't condone that. Mm, no, grave, grave robbing's not like a thing we're cool with yeah Mm -hmm. i've seen enough horror movies also to know not to mess around with stealing from any grave or graveyard Mm. um but when you said that it kind of made me wonder now that like cremation and other forms of you know i guess disposing of your body like composting now is an option Mm -hmm. like grave dirt's gonna become like a, a rare ingredient like it might be harder to get your hands on some of these things the more we like advance our technology for how we decompose i guess <laughs> well and also is it just a rare ingredient now because everybody's in these like two foot layers of you know what do they yeah. call them coffins and <laughs> their bodies don't decompose for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah that's true they're not like just putting bodies straight into the dirt so it's you know i guess they're there i guess if you believe that like the s i guess it depends on what you believe this is right. all dependent on like how you believe that the essence of the person who has died seeps into the earth around it. But yeah, we're usually pumped full of so many chemicals. Exactly. When we're, like formaldehyde that like we don't decompose for a long time. Yeah, I knew somebody who used to work in a graveyard. She would like coordinate, oh. you know, everything yeah. and that sort of thing. 
and also be like the liaison for the families. And she had some pretty wild and strong held beliefs on what should and should not be done with your body when you die. And so much so that I was like, what kind of shit have you seen? But we never got that far in the conversation. Oh boy, yeah. That would have been my immediate next question. Like, so no matter what happens, I need to know why. Because she's clearly seen some stuff. Exactly. But by far the most interesting is witches' bottles. Ooh. In European folklore, witches' bottles are containers filled with various materials and were believed to protect the household from curses or malevolent uh, magic. Mm. Malevolent magic always gets me. It's a a tongue twister. (laughs) Yeah, it really is a lot of mouth moves. The idea was that the items in the bottle in the bottle would absorb negative energy directed at the household. These sound like spell jars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I bet I bet these are like the predecessor to our more modern spell jars. Um, but these, my understanding is that witch bottles were more specifically used as counter magic and were usually made by like folk healers or white witches. So we kind of mentioned in a previous episode how cunning folk were distinguished from witches and that like cunning folk were basically the good witches and witches are are just bad or something witches are just bad the word witch was always meant to mean you're evil uh back in the day Mm -hmm. and i think that was our episode on familiars where we mentioned them but witches bottles are something like a folk healer would make because it's meant to protect from the evil and the witch yeah exactly it's kind of a countermeasure there Mm. protection charms exactly So witches' bottles were most popular during the 16th to the 18th century. They contained a variety of items thought to have protective properties. Common ingredients included pins, nails, needles, thorns, herbs, salt, and protective stones. Sometimes, if a person thought that they were cursed, bottles would also include personal items of theirs, like hair, fingernails, or urine to help remove the curse. Oh, yay, the bodily fluids part. Oh, yeah, no thanks. It's It's a little much. It's a little much for me. Um, yeah, so I looked, I looked more into the urine thing, because apparently that was, like, a super common bodily fluids. Yeah, um, apparently urinary problems were pretty common in the 17th oh, and 18th makes centuries. So people thought that the cause of these issues were witches. And mm. so the thought behind using the urine of the person who was sick is that it would essentially, like, return to sender. Like, <laughs> cool, like, send this back to the witch so that way, like, the ailment would then be reflected and transferred back to the witch that supposedly caused it. Oh, that's it. so funny. That yeah. makes sense. I always think about, like, if I were in 1800s and thinking on how many UTIs I've gotten in my lifetime, right. like, I would have been dead by 15. Oh, 100%. Like, yeah, there's a reason everybody died so young. Like, <laughs> Yes, and the pain. Like, you'd have to live with that pain without any sort of uh-huh. relief from that. I just, yeah, I would have opted out. I don't, yeah, don't want to like, do that. It's like, this is good. We're cool. Yeah. I had a good 15 years. <laughs> yeah, was a solid 15. Listen, you probably would have, like, kicked out a kid by that point, too. Exactly. <laughs> probably several. So witches' bottles were typically made from glass or ceramic and were often sealed with wax, cork or another type of stopper to prevent the contents from escaping the choice of bottle varied and some bottles had elaborate designs while others were more utilitarian once created the witch bottle was typically buried or hidden in a location near the property that they were meant to protect some witch bottles had inscriptions or symbols on the outside which were believed to enhance their protective power these inscriptions might include protective charms prayers or the names of the intended target's enemies. 
Ooh. So, yeah. Basically, everything that's included in a witch's bottle has some, like, symbolic meaning. I've read a few different interpretations of the pins because that was another, like, super common one. And sometimes the pins or nails would be bent. Um, the most common interpretation I've seen is that the pins would, like, impale or cause pain to the witch anytime they tried to cast spells on the person that was that the charm was protecting. It's kind of like a... I don't know, it, like, it activated it and it's like, oh, they'll feel pain. <laughs> like they'll, yeah, no yeah, thanks. That kind of thing. Yeah, um, I don't like reading about this sort of stuff. It makes me feel weird in my body. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's a very visceral reaction. <laughs> So the coolest part of the whole thing is that the witch's bottles have been discovered in archaeological excavations of historic sites in Europe and the Americas, surprisingly. Uh. In 2011, archaeologists... Archaeologists... In 2011... <laughs> I love this. We need a super cut of all the times things are mispronounced and being the best. I know, truly. In 2011, archaeologists excavating an area near Pendle Hill in Lancashire, England discovered a well-preserved witch's bottle dating back to the 17th century. The bottle contained human urine, bent pins, nails, and nail clippings. The discovery provided evidence of the continued belief in witchcraft during this period, as Pendle Hill is associated with the infamous Pendle Witch Trials of 1612. Mm. So many of those. Yeah, truly. Oh, God. <laughs> during renovations at Knoll House in Kent, they stumbled upon a witchy surprise from the 1600s. This old bottle was packed with pins, nails, some bits of leather, and a mysterious liquid that no one could quite figure out. Ooh, what was it? That's upsetting to me. <laughs> I know. What's cool about it is that it was found in a fancy, fancy upscale house, uh. showing that even the rich and famous folks had their share of superstitious beliefs about witches and curses. So yeah, it wasn't like witchcraft was just a thing for regular folks. It was pretty universal back then. I, you know, I would almost think that it should be like more embraced by rich folks because they right. have well you know more reason to potentially have curses placed on them given that you know like classism isn't great for like yeah pro absolutely promoting brotherly love when it comes to that time when like you <laughs> think of the classism yeah classic classism but yeah that's super interesting yeah that makes a lot of sense especially i always think about those like um i i guess i don't know if it's real or not but I think of the movie uh, Penelope when she had the pig nose. Yes, yeah. And that was a rich family who was cursed generations and generations ago. So it really does seem like the rich are. They're targeted. Really yeah, they're targeted <laughs> for sure. So what's cool is that witches' bottles made their way over to America in the late 18th century and have been discovered in quite a few places. But most commonly in the like actual house foundations. Isn't mm. that crazy? That's super cool. Yeah, I started or when like I saw you mentioned this, I was like, I'm gonna read up on that. So this was the spoke practice that actually made it all the way to North America, which was awesome. That people mm -hmm. were like, as they were immigrating, they're bringing their cultures over. So that's why we found a few things over here, a few of these witches' bottles. But we also mentioned that witches' bottles were used to clear curses. They were also <laughs> made as like preemptive measures. Like it's not like you just needed to clear a curse. So that's kind of what these witches' bottles that are found in foundations are for. Because they'd be made as in just like an overall protective charm against evil. 
and they were either built into the foundations of the home or they'd be buried like under where the hearth would be so that and the idea is that like anytime the fire was lit it was believed that it would like activate the pins and send away or like disintegrate any evil that was trapped inside the bottle so like that was so wild yeah it's like they believed like oh any evil like get will be attracted to the bottle because of all the stuff that's in there like I think I think I read one of those other interpretations of urine is that it like attracted evil or like witches. So mm. that way it's like it's like a imagine like a fly zapper for evil curses. <laughs> like <laughs> oh, fly we'll zapper. Just, they're like, oh yeah, we love this thing. And it's like and then the evil gets trapped because of the pins and then the fire is lit and it like burns away the curse, basically. That's an amazing comparison. A fly zapper for evil curses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that kind of does it. It was really cool to read about this, but um yeah, we'd love to hear if you use any form of similarity or contagion magic. We won't tattletale on you if you don't get consent. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. But like, <laughs> if you do have benevolent ways of using these things, we'd mm. also love to hear about that. Yes, for sure. And don't forget to subscribe. Oh, and if you want to let us know, the Tarot Tangents email is now live. <gasps> it's live! Yes, yeah, so feel free, tangents at mysticfooltarot.com if you want to tell us a story. Nice. I'm here for it. <laughs> so don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you're fans podcast, we need you to do this so we can find new fans. We do. We need you desperately. Oh can I start? Can I start singing Sarah McLaughlin's like I will remember? Like this is an yes. SPCA ad. Like mm-hmm. I will remember. One dollar a day feeds an animal for life. I'm the animal. It's me. <laughs> Uh, so tell your friends, follow us on all socials. Our handles are Sweet Death Inc. and Mystic Full Tarot on all platforms. See you later. Bye.